The Cozy Robot Show. Hey, Cozy Robots. I'm Mike McCarg, and I'd like to welcome you to The Cozy Robot Show. This is a show where we talk about our world and our feelings and how we relate to both. And we're live right now on YouTube and Facebook and Periscope and Twitch. Oh my gosh, so say hello. Comments are linked on all platforms. So as the show goes on, I can see what you type. And if you're on Facebook and someone else is on Twitter, you'll see each other's uh, comments. So that's kind of a cool thing we've set up uh, in order to do the program. And uh, the show comes out as a podcast on Wednesdays. So if you're a podcast listener, that's still available. Um, and then we release all the segments from every episode uh, throughout the week on YouTube and Facebook and Instagram. Uh, so if there's a segment you want to share with friends or family, we try to make that really easy. All you've got to do is like and subscribe on whatever platform you're watching right now in order to see those videos as we come out. And wow! We've been working so hard on the program. Um, I'm broadcasting from a brand new computer I built and put together since our last show. So hopefully this week we're going to have a nice stable uh, stream with no crashing and none of the problems that we had last week. And I just want to thank you all for your patience as we've been putting together a live program for the first time. And if you're wondering what the heck cozy robots are, well, you can learn about that because there are over 700 Cozy Robots already. You can learn all about the Cozy Robots and how to be one at CozyRobots.com. Those are the people behind this program. They pick the topics we talk about on the program. They interact with me, and we even have an after party every week on Discord as soon as the show is over. Now, I had a lot of people ask me this week, what in the heck is Discord? <laughs> well, when you join the Cozy Robots, you are automatically added uh, if you have a Discord account, to our Discord server. And Discord is a community platform that allows real-time chat as well as voice and video chat. So we just kind of get on there and hang out both after the show and during the weeks. So uh, you can learn all about that by uh, heading over to CozyRobots.com in a web browser. I see everybody is... Uh... <laughs> Everybody say hello. Victory says, whoever my wardrobe stylist is gets an uh, A+. Plus. I believe, Victory, this was a joint effort between you and Jenny. <laughs> so, uh, this, was not, this was not me. <laughs> anyway, that's how it goes. And uh, it's fun to have a moment of levity. Uh, because tonight's show, I'd like to talk with you about something very serious. Our topic for this week is fragility. And when I say the term fragility, uh, you probably don't think of like a porcelain vase anymore. You probably speak think of a very specific term, which is white fragility. And that is absolutely something we're going to talk about tonight. But it's not all we're going to talk about tonight. But I'd ask you for just a moment, when I say the words white fragility, how do you feel? What happens in your feelings and in your body when you hear that phrase? I've noticed that just mentioning white fragility often creates an emotionally charged dynamic in any space, whether that's online or in person. Even at small family gatherings, just bringing up white fragility, especially with white families, can create a really charged dynamic. And why is that? Why is saying 
white fragility something that escalates us. You know, I've noticed when I do live streams and I bring up issues about white fragility or white supremacy, suddenly comments will pop in. People say things like, well, I was with you until you started in on all this white guilt. And I've noticed that this, this intensity around discussing fragility, at least as we're talking now about white fragility, uh, has escalated as we become more politically polarized in the United States and abroad. And it seems like uh, we're, we're subdividing into either, you know, you're in the Black Lives Matter camp or you're a patriot. <laughs> That's the dichotomy that our media ecosystem tries to force us into. And by the way, in doing so, set those ideas up with some kind of oppositional dichotomy that doesn't exist. So we're going to talk about that in our time together tonight, but I'd also like to start by saying white fragility is not the only type of fragility that exists in ourselves and in our world. Anytime we talk about issues of identity, fragility often shows up in our conversations. Of course, when we talk about race or even colorism, the notion that uh, darker skin shades are more discriminated against against lighter skin shades, even among people of color. But also when we talk about gender, fragility can come to play. When we talk about sexual orientation, fragility shows up. When we talk about disability, gosh, disability really brings out fragility in conversations. We can talk about religion and people get fragile. Even secularists can get fragile when religion comes up. These days, political affiliation has become such an intense point of identity that it's led us to feel fragile when we talk about it. And what I've also noticed is that so many of us as children were taught that generalizing was wrong. And so we feel upset. We feel in some way like the rules have changed when someone makes a blanket statement or a generalization about white people or straight people or cis people or men, or especially when someone makes a blanket statement about white, straight, cisgendered men. And so we start to feel escalated. We start to feel defensive and we start to feel confused. And our bodies process that the ways that they do. But it's not simply matters of identity that bring up fragility into our experiences. Climate fragility is definitely a thing. And it's not just a thing exclusive to political conservatives. Progressives can absolutely be fragile about matters of climate as well. And the most frustrating thing about fragility is how easy it is for us to see in other people and how difficult it is to see in ourselves. Here's the problem. Our nervous systems equate belonging with survival. We are a social species. If you followed me for any period of time, you've heard me say that many, many times. But we're the kind of animal that doesn't survive well on its own. Even before agriculture and cities, roaming around by yourself for a long period of time is a recipe for disaster for a human being. 
It's so it's so terrifying. We watch reality shows about it. I'm super into a program called Alone, where people go out into the wilderness and try to just survive as long as they can. And they don't do that very long. These even even specialists in survival. You know, and as little as seven or ten days and on a high side, you know, seventy or eighty days. They are getting near the edge of death. Our nervous systems equate belonging with survival and for good reason. And because of that, we spend a lot of our energy on estimating and managing our reputation with other people. And we also spend a lot of energy forming and maintaining a positive self-image, which is already difficult because culturally, our positive self-image is under assault assault by socialized shaming. I said assault, like, and it made me think of a salt shaker, <laughs> which is not what I meant. Uh, under assault is under attack by uh, a socialized shaming forces. We've really normalized shame in almost every subculture of humanity these days. And so when change is already scary and when things being different already calls into question our belonging, we layer on top of that the fact that most reasonable projections about future change in our society and in our culture are frightening or even outright terrifying. We've got wildfires. We've got a pandemic. We have a universally terrifying political situation. I don't care if you're a MAGA supporter or an anarcho-communist. What everyone agrees on is the other side winning is really frightening. And so our bodies are designed to handle that kind of stress with a fight or flight or faint or freeze response. And unfortunately, for reasons we'll all talk about together, we're now getting escalated all the time into that pattern. That's part of fragility. And that creates a condition known as allostatic load on our bodies when stress becomes so chronic that it actually changes our body chemistry and metabolic function. Somewhere our bodies believe, well, maybe if I just shut down, lie down, maybe this will all go away. We find ourselves fighting every day just to get up and move through our lives in stressful circumstances. And when someone raises that there are problems in the world and those problems might be related to the way that we live, our, our nervous systems get defensive. Our inner crocodile says, this feels bad. I don't like it. So I can get defensive and grr, I can fight. I can chase this adversary away. Or if that seems too difficult, I can run away. I can avoid the situation altogether. And if it's bad enough, I know what feels good. Our, our brainstem and our limbic system keep a little running tab of everything that feels good to our bodies. And that's why on a difficult day we might enjoy a cookie or a cold beer or a, a binge watching of a Netflix series. These escapist behaviors help us get away from things that feel bad or difficult 
and ultimately drive us into what psychologists call defensive affects, ways of regulating our feelings without actually processing them. We might even call that repressing our feelings. When reality threatens our coping mechanisms, that's when fragility appears. So we can become fragile in discussing wildfires and floods that are caused by climate change. We can become fragile when talking about the collective measures we may need to take to mitigate a global pandemic. And we can become fragile when someone tells us that their life is not like ours because of perceived matters of sociological identity. I am a white man. And so when a woman of color tells me that her life is different than mine and is more difficult in specific ways than mine, I can feel defensive because I want to believe that I am a good person. In fact, researchers tell us that is an essential part of human meaning-making and identity formation, the notion that one is a good person. And when that notion is called into question, because we're social beings who are trying to survive, we can become fragile. You see, fragility is both a natural and completely understandable psychological response to a problem and one of the most significant impediments to making our world better. It is both of those things at the same time. You see, fragility slows down conversations that can lead to meaningful actions and ultimately creates frustration and emotional duress for anyone impacted by whatever is causing someone to feel fragile in the first place. Of course, it makes sense that white people don't want to talk about matters of white supremacy when they're trying to just pay their rent, take care of their families, and be a good friend to other people. But friends, it also makes sense that people of color are frustrated by this fragile response, this, this defensive, escapist, emotional response when their lives are impacted each day by the system of white supremacy. I'd like to talk to you about this for a moment from a personal perspective. I'm a disabled person. I'm an adult with autism spectrum disorder. I've also been diagnosed with a neurological condition called narcolepsy type 1 with cataplexy. Because of that, it's not safe for me to drive more than about 20 minutes. And I'm only supposed to drive during the daylight hours, even avoiding dawn and dusk because I can fall asleep for moments at a time without being aware of it. And that means in order to live my life, I require help and assistance. Now, fortunately for me, most of the help and assistance I need is available to me from my family system. But when I tell people that I'm disabled, even if I'm not talking about access barriers and systems or the social model of disability, people respond to me in ways that are defensive. Naming that I am disabled provokes a discomfort in another person. They might say something like, oh, Mike, but you don't look 
or act disabled. In doing so, they reveal assumptions that they have about disabled people. Or, and people have really told me this, don't have a victim mindset. You shouldn't call yourself autistic, and you certainly couldn't or should not call yourself disabled. Other times, people will say to me, you know, my life is hard too. Without prompting, they'll share their own experiences. Or finally, they might say something like, you know, I know there might be problems, but it's a lot better than it used to be. Now, don't misunderstand me. I am a disabled person and a person of tremendous privilege. I'm a best-selling author with an audience that loves me, truly. And so I have all kinds of opportunities in life and things that allow me to mitigate disability. In many ways, access barriers related to my disability are removed. And that doesn't change the fact that I still face access barriers. And other people who are disabled and are not white male best-selling authors, well, they still face significant access barriers. And just because it's better than it was 100 or 50 or even 20 years ago, well, that doesn't erase the fact that their problems in life still often come from our society and not from their disability. But what all these responses kind of share in common is that they are ways for people to protect their positive sense of self-identity, the belief that they are a good person, and therefore the society that they are a part of creating is good as well. And there are also ways that we manage social reputation. When we say to someone, oh, you don't look disabled, perhaps what we're trying to say is, oh, I accept you, I see you, but because we haven't done the work to really understand how we relate to disability and disabled people, we aren't capable of a nuanced perspective. And when I talk about the list I went through to earlier, race, ethnicity, gender, orientation, ability, political affiliation, religion, age, all these different ways that fragility shows up in conversations. I think everyone has one of those they haven't kind of processed through and can be fragile in issues around. And all of those groups, we all suffer in our own ways by our collective inability to process these topics. So what can we do about fragility? Again, remembering that fragility is a completely normal, natural, understandable, even expected response from human psychology to something that makes us feel afraid or insecure related to our own identity. Well, I think a good start is learning to have a mindful relationship with our own feelings. Friends, our modern society is very, very effective at putting us asleep to our own feelings. So often we engage in medicating behaviors to get away from our feelings instead of having the tools to manage our own feelings. 
It is important to have a mindful relationship with our feelings, but to do that, we have to learn to even know what our feelings are. We have to identify our feelings. And the fact that that's challenging for you, if it is, isn't actually your fault. I want to be really clear. If you sometimes feel fragile, I'm not blaming you. And if you have difficulty relating to certain feelings like sadness or anger or fear, I'm not blaming you. Your tool set for managing those feelings are things that were socialized into you as a child by your family system and your culture and your society. So when we feel fragile, I don't blame you. When we have a complex relationship with our feelings, I don't blame you. But what I want you to know is there is the opportunity for us to learn new ways of relating to our feelings. And that's an essential first step in overcoming fragility. And we also have to learn to take care of our feelings. So often the way our family systems and cultures are structured is that we try to take over other people's feelings and manage their feelings for them, and then we expect them to do the same for us. We try to telegraph our needs instead of naming them. Learning to take care of ourselves and letting others take care of themselves by stating their needs is part of moving beyond fragility. And finally, learning rhythms in life is very important. One of the reasons we might be overwhelmed by the news and discussing climate change or might be overwhelmed in talking about white supremacy or sexism or ableism or any of these difficult topics is because our immune systems, not our immune systems, our nervous systems are constantly aroused by stimulus where these topics are hitting us over and over and over via social media and news media. It is not irresponsible to limit the amount of time we spend consuming social and news media. It is responsible. Our bodies need time to rest, to build resiliency. And so when you feel overwhelmed, it's okay to step back and come back later. And in fact, I encourage it. Learning to confront and overcome fragility is not quick work. It is not easy work, but it is essential work. Because, friends, when we are fragile, we cannot truly show up in relationship with other people. Even in our family systems, we can have fragility around certain topics or certain patterns of behavior. We get defensive in a need to protect our sense of identity and our reputation. And in those moments, we cannot hear what a loved one may be telling us. In the same way, in our society, we may not be able to hear each other if our fragility gets in the way. The Cozy Robot Show would be impossible without the support of our amazing sponsors. And one of my favorites is BetterHelp. They're an online counseling service that is 
almost tailored for this exact moment in history because they offer mental health services via the internet. That means you can connect with your phone or mobile device, your iPad, your tablet, your laptop, your desktop, whatever you need to use, you can use to talk to a licensed mental health professional. And one of the hardest things about finding a therapist is looking through phone books or directories or something to try to figure out who could be a good fit, and BetterHelp does all that for you. If you go to betterhelp.com slash sciencemike, you can fill out a brief questionnaire, and then the professionals at BetterHelp will do the work for you to connect you with a counselor you're going to love. Over 1.2 million people have signed up so far, and BetterHelp is adding counselors all over the world right now to make sure that they can meet demand. The best news of all is you'll get 10% off your first month's service when you uh, go to betterhelp.com slash sciencemike to sign up. So why not get started today? Visit betterhelp.com slash sciencemike. So I'd like to help us learn to practice this together. And that's what we're going to do right now in a segment we call A Moment of Calm. You know, if we talk about how we relate to feelings and how difficult it is to understand what we're feeling moment by moment, you know, a lot of times I'm anxious and don't know it because I feel anxious all the time. And so the fact that my shoulders get tight or my belly gets tight or I experience heartburn or pressure in my chest, all of those things become so normal that my miraculous body just gets used to it. And so it is with fragility. Often when we feel defensive in response to a feeling of shame, we don't notice that. And so I'd like to talk with you now in our time of calm about noticing and naming defensiveness and shame. You know, we're social animals. It's totally natural that we're reactive and we feel our sense of self-worth or our reputation is threatened. If I'm white and someone's talking about white supremacy, I can feel implicated. And I would say, well, I'm not a white supremacist. And then I might interrupt someone who's sharing their feelings or sharing their experiences to make sure we clarify that I'm not a white supremacist. And when this happens, our bodies can respond several ways. It can feel hot. It can feel like anger, right? When we get a hot reaction, our face might feel flushed. We might feel a surge of righteous anger. We might feel so justified in anything we could say or do. We might hit the caps lock key on our keyboard, or we might speak in more punctuated and loud ways if we are responding hot in response to defensiveness and shame. It can also feel cold. We can feel so cognitive and intellectual and reasonable. It can feel like something else entirety. All of our bodies are different. All of our socialized responses are different. The point is to get into a pattern where we understand if we are often, if, someone, if people call us fragile often, well, we often feel defensive and responsive to things that we read. Whether or not we agree with those things, friends, is not important. 
what is important is that we get in touch with the feelings so we can actually engage with whatever we're trying to engage with. So I recommend in those moments, you can do this with me right now. First, you can stop and stop and notice and check in. I like to start around my belly and then move up from there and just see what I'm feeling where, what sensations are happening in my body, where is tight, where is loose, where is hot, where is cold, what is tingling, what is itching, whatever, whatever feelings I'm having, sensations in my body. Stop and notice them. And then breathe. Notice the breath. Pay attention to it. Your breath is there all the time. And so right now, if you took a moment and checked in, you'd find that breath is there. And as you find that, you would notice that often when we inhale, it's cool. And when we exhale, it's warmer. You can feel that temperature difference. You don't have to control your breath. Just pay attention to it. And as we've scanned our body and breathed, we often find that our nervous system starts to de-escalate. Whatever felt so provoking, so shameful, or creating a defense response a moment ago, stops doing that. And we can do that as often as we need for as long as we need. And then... We name what we're feeling. We name it. So I'd like you right now to stop and breathe and name what you're feeling. I feel a warmth in my belly. I feel a lightness in my cheeks and my eyes. And if I were to name that feeling... Oh gosh, that's really nice. I just got this rolling sensation over my scalp. I feel happy, and I think I feel happy because I'm here with all of you right now in this show. I can see your comments as I'm talking. It's so much fun to see that you're there. So we name what we're feeling. Science tells us that we name our emotions. It helps our brains to process that feeling. If you name that you're feeling angry or sad or nervous or anxious or guilty or ashamed, it helps your brain move through that feeling. But after we name it, then we want to give the feeling some space. We just want to experience that feeling. And if the feeling feels too strong, it's okay to de-escalate. We can still stop and breathe and center. But that noticing and that naming is a practice we could work on every day. And the more we work on that process, the more we might find that we are able to meaningfully respond to feelings of fragility. Well, one of the things that is so activating in our world today is news media. And it is not always easy to discern what is factual in reporting today from what is editorial analysis from what might be opinion pieces. And most media or publications will offer us a mix of all three of those, but they don't clearly delineate them from one another many times. And when we combine that with our modern social media, where there aren't any editors other than algorithms, 
the lines between fact and opinion have become very blurred and feeds into a polarization that increases the amount of people who feel fragile because we've become so escalated in our topics of discussion. And this is very serious, friends. Families are being torn apart by political polarization in our world today. It is paralyzing our ability to act collectively in ways that improves the lives of our fellow human beings. So I'd like to tonight look at a couple of opinion pieces so to, to work on how we can relate to this kind of information. We're going to look at this piece from the Washington Post titled, When it comes to race relations, the left and the right are miles apart. And there'll be a link to this piece in the video uh, that you're watching so that you can read along as well, although that's not there for our live viewers. Okay, so when we look at this piece, one of the first things we notice is uh, a very small word. It says the fix, and then in tiny gray text, it says analysis. So they are labeling that this is not a reporting piece, uh, like factual reporting, that this is an analysis piece. And the author here is Eugene Scott, and that's listed. This is a credited piece, and there's a publication date listed. And the Washington Post is a very well-known uh, media outlet, so we know that it has an editorial review board. Those are three things we're looking for to to even start assessing the quality of a post online. Is there an author? Is there a date? Is it published by some institution that has an editorial review board? That creates some degree of accountability. We also find that this piece, however, is written from an omniscient point of view or a third-person perspective, which is what we typically say... <laughs> Sing the song, people referencing the fake news rap from back in the day. Uh, <laughs> thank you, that's hilarious. Uh, but it's written from an omniscient point of view, which is what most reporting pieces are written in. And so if you don't pay attention to that tiny gray word analysis above the headline, you might think this is a reporting piece, especially because it opens with a citation of a survey that is directly linked so you could easily think this is a factual reporting piece. And that's not the author's fault. It's actually the, the layout um, by the Washington Post here is to get your attention, not clearly contextualize the work. So I do appreciate the, the nod they've got of this tiny little word in gray that says analysis. But, you know, what are you going to do? As I review the piece itself, uh, you can kind of see that... Um, the author does offer supporting evidence on any claims made in the, claims made in the piece. Uh, there are uh, kind of one foot in news reporting and another in drawing conclusions about that news. And so analysis, I actually think, is a perfect label for this piece. It's kind of fitting into its lane. It's delivering on the promise they've made to the reader. So even if you disagree with the conclusions of Eugene Scott here, Mr. Scott and the publication have done the work to set you up to make your own evaluation and encourage you to do so by positioning this as an analysis piece. Now, one thing I like to do when I look at um, 
any publication is look at the sidebar where they list popular articles. So in the this is in the politics section of the Washington Post. And we can see in that sidebar, um, the first piece is an analysis piece that says how the GOP is trying to justify its Supreme Court reversal. Uh, whether or not you agree with that framing, it offers you a framing. It lets you know uh, kind of where that analysis piece is coming from. Um, as we go through all those pieces, there's a lot of analysis pieces that are popular and some original reporting pieces, but the original pieces tend to be what? They tend to be um, critical of the Trump administration. Okay, so uh, another thing I like to do, even though I obviously I know who the Washington Post is, you probably know who the Washington Post is, there's a site called Media Bias Fact Check at mediabiasfactcheck.com. This is a, an independent, nonpartisan service that tries to evaluate the trustworthiness of media. It is not um, scholarly. These are just people doing their best, uh, but there, it's the only site of its kind on the web today. Uh, and so they label the Washington Post as a left-center bias with high factual reporting and then offer their justification for that. What I do like about MediaBiasFactCheck.com is they will explain to you why they offered the bias label they did. And in the factual rating, they will show you th independent third-party fact checks, uh, which is how they come up with their score. So it's not that Media Bias Fact Check has done the fact checking. They do rely on professional fact checking organizations to do that work. So that's really important. And... Um, It's good for us to know when we're reading an analysis piece where uh, a given publication might fit on a political spectrum. And it certainly helps us to know how often that they are weighing in on a factual basis and how often they're missing the mark. And do they print retractions? Some publications not only uh, print or run stories that have factual errors, they often refuse to run a retraction with independent fact checkers point that out. So the Washington Post is a high, not a very high, but a high factual basis and a left of center bias. Now let's go across the political aisle this week to the National Review, okay? And uh, I, I'll be honest with you, I read the National Review a lot. And uh, I'll offer you my point of view here. You don't need media bias fact check for this. I am way left of center, which is pretty wild. Uh, because one interesting thing about the media I create is people all across the political spectrum consume it, from ardent Trump supporters um, and even, you know, probably like some white nationalists, all the way over to like anarcho-communists. <laughs> Everyone in between uh, listens to my podcast and might watch the Cozy Robot Show. And so there's a huge diversity in political orientation. Uh, in this audience. And uh, and I read the National Review. I've read the National Review for years. And because of that, I, when I was a evangelical Republican, I disagreed with what most of the opinion shared in the National Review. But what I like about the National Review is there seems to be a consistent effort, at least, to make justifications 
for the opinions they share there. Now, in recent years, certainly, National Review is getting not infected with bias. There's lots of bias in media. I don't have a problem with bias in media if it's disclosed and understood. But where National Review seems to be going that I find troublesome is to be more sensationalistic in tone and a greater readiness to play it loose with facts when it supports their position. And that is kind of ahistoric for this publication. And the, the piece we're talking about right now uh, is titled Systemic Racism, Make Them Prove It. And it's written by Andrew C. McCarthy. And it is not labeled as opinion. Um, and I, you know, my preference, my preference is that a publication should always offer a clear label on a piece as reporting or analysis or opinion. To the National Review's defense, however, they are an opinion publication. They're not really a news organization. Their job, their mandate is to print and share opinion reporting. Uh, so the only way a reader should be confused here is if they have no awareness of National Review in the first place, which is possible. Um, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm not criticizing them as harshly as I generally would because it's the nature of the publication. And once again, the author and date are listed on the piece. I know you're like, Mike, you say that every time, but it's so important. It's something I check on every piece of media I read. If you wrote something that is quality, you should put your name on it and you should be open to the accountability of standing by your words. Now, uh, this piece is written in a first-person perspective, and that is always a tip-off that we are looking at an opinion piece. And uh, you don't see a lot of first-person factual reporting. <laughs> and, uh, you know, obviously, you know, you'll be able to click the link and read the piece yourself. And um, I, obviously, I don't agree with any of the argument here, but that's not the point of news and noise is about whether I agree with an argument made or an opinion made. The point is helping you contextualize media in your life. And when I look at the pieces, the, the body of work by Andrew C. McCarthy for the National Review, both the headlines and the supporting copy of the articles and pieces that he's written for the publication, they seem to be more inflammatory than average for National Review. Seems to really have a goal of getting the reader worked up, maybe even angry. And uh, outside of his work for the publication, he wrote a book called Ball of Collusion, the plot to rig an election and destroy a presidency. And again, I'm not saying whether he is right or wrong. Opinions are not right or wrong. <laughs> um, but it lets us see where uh, Mr. McCarthy is coming from. It's always helpful to look at the body of work for a given author or writer or reporter. I mean, if you look at my body of work, you could safely assume that I'm left of center and socially progressive. And that is relevant information in evaluating the things that I share. And this is true for both the publication of the National Review and this writer, Andrew McCarthy. When we look at Mr. McCarthy's work, we see that he's not just right of center, but he's also an ardent supporter and defender of Donald Trump. Now, I've got a question here. 
in the chat that says, why is National Review becoming more sensational? Because it sales. <laughs> because it sales, y'all. <laughs> Just going deep into my, uh, my roots there for a moment. Because it sells. Yeah, of course. You know, uh, you stole the words right out of my mouth. That's actually the next thing I was going to talk about. Because this piece, uh, and frankly, the Washington Post piece, show the same thing about why news gets made. And it is to sell, right? Uh, the, the, the job of news is not necessarily to inform us. That is a byproduct of its core mission, which is generally to sell advertising. My favorite publications tend to be those that you subscribe to and don't have ads at all. And when we get into that place and we try to look at that, we can see the ways that the interaction of a publication and an audience working together where the, the publication tries to find a place that it stands and that draws an audience and then what the audience responds or doesn't respond to shifts a publication over time because it's a business trying to survive. In this era, it is much more successful in the, the age of Fox News and Breitbart and One American News Network to be what? Angry and sensationalistic for that segment of readership. So that, of course, is why they've become more sensationalistic. They're trying to survive as a business. But that's to the detriment of our public dialogue and how informed our population is. I actually appreciate genuinely how clear both the Washington Post and National Review make their relative biases. The only thing I'd like to see here is a deeper commitment from National Review to improve the basis of their factual claims and editorial oversight. You've got an editorial board. Use it. Let's not see so many uh, factual retractions happening in even opinion pieces because we have to agree on a common set of facts about reality in order to engage in any productive discussion. And if we're talking about fragility, friends, well, of course, fragility is escalated when we can't agree together about what is real in our world. Well, this Cozy Robot show came from another program called Ask Science Mike, which was a show where we explored our curiosity together, and we are still doing that on the Cozy Robot show. And so as we talk about fragility this week, we asked you to send in your questions about fragility, and you did. Thank you. So if you'd like to help us keep making this show by sharing your curiosity, know you can go to CozyRobots.com anytime and click the Ask Mike a Question button right in the navigation, and that will take you to a list of topics we're going to talk about together and help us to make the show by you sending in your own question. And so we're going to go ahead and go to our first question right now, which comes from Chris. Hey Mike, I'm a big fan of your content. I've watched it and have been craving for more videos. So glad to see that you're putting out something new. Uh, my question is uh, regarding fragility and privilege. Do you think those uh, in any way kind of get 
in the way of of nuance and of uh of in the way of like progress and what i mean that is in the sense that as we move into like social media where things are shared or news articles are shared or whatever is shared and if it offends someone they sort of just veer in that direction head first and zero to 60 really fast and it takes a takes away from any discussion uh because you try to talk to them and like no they they stick to their lane and they're offended uh love to know your thoughts that really is the heart of what we're talking about together is the way online conversations have become so fraught with emotional peril and we have to start by looking at the media itself and to this case i mean social media now don't hear me wrong i am not a luddite i'm not against social media social media is such a powerful tool i mean if i look at hashtag me too or hashtag black lives matter and the way social media has allowed people to organize in a grassroots way to meaningfully improve the world by bringing to light great injustices oh gosh i'm a huge fan of social media or the way that people who are in some way marginalized or disenfranchised are able to find each other and offer mutual support via social media is something that has to be noted and acknowledged. I mean, think about how many people's religious beliefs are changing in the United States today and how people have been able to find safety by discussing their questions and doubts and new beliefs with people online who may not live close by and likely aren't in their in-person social network. And think about people who are disabled, who have access barriers to getting out into the world with the same ease as other people, the ways that they're able to engage meaningfully in social interaction on social media. So don't hear me saying that social media is bad or wrong or should go away. And we have to talk about the fact that there are limits to online communication and that those limits are made worse by the business models of social media companies. We're social mammals. And a lot of what we communicate to one another happens in our body language and in our facial expressions and in our tone of voice. And the majority of the information we share with one another online is textual. Tap, 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 tap. Little text. Little avatar. Sometimes an empty egg. And when all we see is an avatar and text, research tells us that creates a dehumanizing factor in how we interact with other people. And then you add on top of that that machines are learning what gets our attention. And the machines have learned what? That moral outrage drives up our attention, drives up our engagement, and therefore drives up the profit of these companies. The very user interfaces have been intentionally architected to keep us using these products. Things like endless scrolling, as opposed to going to additional pages of content, is an intentional design decision to keep us hooked. And all of these things and more come together to create patterns that condition our nervous system towards being activated or aroused when we are online. And very, very unfortunately, 
we're learning that social media companies know this and that people in those organizations have been saying loudly the impact these surfaces have on our mental health and on our society and they've continued to push these technologies even knowing that in pursuit of greater and greater profits it's important to keep that in mind when we talk about how we interact with each other online that these services are not here to help the people that use them but to earn profits for the companies that make them by selling advertising and we want to keep that in our mind when we notice that we are being dehumanized or dehumanizing another person when we notice we're moving into patterns of moral outrage justified or not that this plays a role in leading people into fragility and defensiveness. We also want to know why we're engaging. I've of the sincere belief that everyone involved loses when you fight on the internet. That's not to say that there's no place for conflict or there's no place for substantive debate, or there's no place for accountability or calling people out. I think all of those things are important. But when we dig in, in a back and forth fight, argument online, I've just noticed no minds are changed and afterwards everyone involved feels terrible. They feel drained. They feel overwhelmed. They feel anxious. They may even feel feel burned out. And so maybe one of the things when we're engaging online is we should know, are we actually trying to change someone's mind? Are we trying to perform some perspective for the sake of our identity? Or are we trying to be responsible in the public sphere around communication? And if it's the last one, it's okay to assert facts when you see a conspiracy theory shared or push back on racist or xenophobic or sexist or homophobic comments and then move on. We don't have to engage back and forth with people. We can just slow the spread of fake news or conspiracy theories or virulent memes without getting bogged down. It's important to remember that every person's brain is asking three questions all the time. Am I safe? Do I belong? And what does this mean? And most issues of importance create fear and uncertainty in our brains around those first two questions. Am I safe in a world of changing climate? Am I safe as a white person when people are saying Black Lives Matter? Do I belong? Am I being judged for my identity or label? Now that might sound ridiculous that you know some of the wealthy and most privileged people in human history white americans might question their safety and belonging but the fact is that they do and so when we have the opportunity to help mitigate the question of am i safe and do i belong we create the platform for meaningful discussion that's why i wanted to do this show tonight i am a white man and so it is frankly less emotionally laborious for me to offer other white men a sense of safety and belonging when we discuss white fragility or white supremacy than it could be for someone more directly impacted by systems 
of white supremacy. We have to be challenged in order to change. But we also psychologically have to be affirmed in order to grow and change. When we have the space and the emotional resiliency to offer someone who is sincerely asking questions around topics that typically make people fragile, we can help offer people an invitation into safety and belonging and therefore into a meaningful discussion of issues of vital importance in our world. I believe that mindful social media usage is a powerful form of grassroots activism when I'm able to be less reactive and less cynical. I can connect with people who are sincerely curious. Now, what if those people who are not sincerely curious, who are simply wanting to parrot a point of view or even actively cause other people harm emotionally out of some voyeuristic, sadistic thrill? <laughs> well, that's why these platforms have block buttons. <laughs> You know, we're so afraid to not fall into an echo chamber that I think often we engage in people who are not involved in a good faith discussion. When people are sincere, I will dig deep into my emotional resources to try to have conversations that can improve the world we live in together. But when people are acting in bad faith, friends, that's what the block button is for. I think ultimately, some form of collective, probably governmental action is going to be necessary to push back on the widespread mental health and societal health issues that social media is causing. We can't put the genie back in the bottle. We can't squeeze the toothpaste back in the tube, nor should we. But we can at least make sure there's not toxic chemicals in the toothpaste. <laughs> right? And so, online, in the meantime... We've got to do what we can ourselves. We've got to be mindful. We've got to be patient. And when necessary, we've got to press that block button. Hi, Science Mike. My name is Martin. I am increasingly frustrated because as a straight white male, I seem to be blamed for every ill in society, yet I can't come to the table for an honest discussion of the issues. I didn't choose to be straight white or male, or I didn't choose my parents or my socioeconomic status, which was being poor, raised by a single mom in Section 8 housing with limited income and limited choices. Because I'm a straight white male who is conservative, I'm often labeled xenophobic, homophobic, racist, or bigoted, and I don't deny that any of those things exist, and I don't deny that I have wrestled with all of those issues over the course of my life and trying to be uh, a Christ follower. If I say anything that pushes back on those labels, I'm labeled fragile. So how can we have a sane discussion of tough issues if the progressives believe that nothing I say counts? Martin, I feel so sad. I can hear in your voice the ways that it has hurt when you have been called racist or xenophobic or homophobic. I've been called racist before and it hurt my feelings. I've been called homophobic before 
and it hurt my feelings. And I just want to name that I see what you've done here right now. You opened yourself up. You sent a question into the Cozy Robot show. My political beliefs and beliefs on social issues are no secret to anyone. And you showed up. And you shared your feelings and your perspective. And you asked a question. And I want to thank you for that. And I hope it's not off-putting that I started responding to your question with tears, but Martin, I just felt such sadness for you and for me and for the breakdown in communication in our world. Because, Martin, it sounds like you've done a lot of work already. You know, there's a lot of men who are white and straight and Christian and conservative who can't admit that they've ever struggled with feelings of racism or xenophobia. They'll even fight on the idea that those things exist. And so I want to name that I am just so proud of you for doing that work, for confronting those experiences in your own life. And I'd also like to name that even the way in which you asked your questions was probably really frightening and overwhelming and difficult to a lot of people who are watching this program right now. That for many people who are women or are queer or are people of color, the context and code in which you communicated was probably really activating. In fact, yeah, now I'm starting to see comments come in to that effect. So at the same time, you feel unseen, even attacked. The way you asked your question was also activating, even frightening, to other people who watch this program. Is it any wonder that we have a hard time communicating with each other? Is it any wonder that things are breaking down when everyone feels afraid of each other? Martin, our culture, and by our culture I mean white culture, and I mean male culture, it comes with real, measurable, documented advantages. We might even call them privileges. And that means that other people as a matter of survival, learn to code switch around us in order to meet our cultural assumptions when they interact with us in person or online, but especially in person. The cultural codes, the behavioral norms and expectations of white men are the dominant shaping force of society globally, but especially in the West and almost uniquely in the United States. And so when people are with us at work or with us at a social function, they adopt the manner of speaking and being that is common and comfortable to white men. 
And if that sounds strange to you or anyone, understand we do that too. I mean, think about the different ways that you might hold your body or use your voice or what words you might choose if you were talking to your parents or caregivers versus your children or, or, or children in your family versus coworkers you might see at your place of work. Versus if you were to meet Queen Elizabeth, I bet in those different situations, the way that you hold your body and the way that you use your voice and choose language shifts a little bit. I know I would act really different if I met Queen Elizabeth, <laughs> right? And with that said, white, straight men generally have to do less code switching, and that serves as a testament to the outsized role that we play in society framing what is rational or sane, and I will put quotes around those, in a discussion. We get to decide often what is said and how it is said. And naming that, listen to me, this is very important. Naming that people like us have privilege does not erase or ignore the fact that you have had serious struggles in your life. You know what? It's absolutely true that white people struggle in America. My family's roots are poor and rural. I've traced my ancestry back to the mid-1700s, and do you know what I found? Poverty, bouncing back and forth between Northern Ireland and the lowlands of Scotland, moving across the Atlantic, and continuing a lineage of poverty all the way until my father's generation. It's so true that working-class white families struggle. I'd even say they have an unfair deal in our society. And at the same time, it's true that white supremacy exists and offers those same advantages over black families at the same economic station, right? If you picture two families, same household income, one is white, one is black, one of those families has easier access to housing. One of those families has easier access to finance capital. One of those families is statistically much less likely to have a lethal encounter with a police officer. That's the world we live in. It is true that white supremacy exists. It is true that we live in a patriarchal society and that it offers white men advantages over other people. And... It's true that there are a lot of starving white families. Both of these things are true at the same time. In the United States, we don't start off on equal footing. And that difference keeps getting amplified over time as wealth is passed down along family lineages. Wealth that was created by a continent that already had native and indigenous people living on it, and that was cultivated by people who were not paid for their labor because they were slaves. And in my life, it has really helped me to see that.
to see that my challenges are real and that I have advantages in wealth and housing access and criminal justice when compared to women, people of color, or more visibly disabled people. I mentioned earlier that I was once called homophobic. And the reason was I was a conservative Christian and I believed everybody was a beloved child of God and that it was a sin against God for people to be involved in a same-sex romantic or sexual relationship. And I didn't think I was homophobic. I didn't think I was afraid of gay people. I even supported government unions if they wanted to live together. But I thought that marriage should be reserved as a Christian sacrament for people of whom God approved. And when I would share that opinion in person or online, I was often called homophobic, and it was so upsetting to me. It took years before I understood the way what I thought was my private and personal belief ended up being executed with the force of law against other people. You know, I've never had any question that if something happened to me, that my wife would be able to visit me in the hospital or that our children would be in her custody in the event of my death. And that's just not true. For lesbian, gay, and trans people, in our world. What I thought was my private, personal belief, which I had a right to, gosh, it impacted someone else differently than it impacted me, didn't it? Art and I think that friends are truly friends when they can listen to their friends when they share their challenges. I want to know people well and I want to be their friends. And one of the most important tools that we have to learn as white men that we were not given by our culture is the power of being good listeners. I mean, really listening when someone else tells us their challenges and the things that they face in their lives every day. And it can make us feel defensive. It can make us feel like we are being blamed personally for the problem. When in fact, the truth is we are, we are participating in a system that creates the problem. And that's a critical distinction. Martin, I bet you're a good person. I bet you care for other people. And of course, it's upsetting to be framed as the bad guy. But you aren't. When people offer critiques of the system we live in based on their experiences, that is not necessarily a critique of you unless you minimize their experiences by trying to frame the conversation in the way that we are so often taught to. I'd encourage you, Martin, to remember times when you have felt frustrated that someone hasn't really listened to your side of the story. And now I want you to imagine that other people feel that too. And the impacts of not being heard 
are not the same for everyone. Martin, I'm a Christ follower too. And Jesus modeled this really well. Jesus told a parable of the Good Samaritan when asked what the most important thing was in all of Scripture. And when we hear that story, as Americans, we think of the Good Samaritan as the protagonist. We think this is a story about learning to be like the Good Samaritan. But the people who listened to that parable originally would have not heard it that way. Because Samaritans were a despised group of people in the first century. Jesus brilliantly used Samaritans, a despised people, who were despised by another group of people living under the oppressive thumb of the Roman Empire. Which is extraordinarily timely. I think were Jesus speaking today, we would have heard the parable of the good lesbian or the good Muslim or the good Mexican or the good feminist or the good disability advocate or the good Black Lives Matter activist. What it means to love God would have been equated to those who see those in need and respond, not by being right, but by being there. Thank you so much for your question. Fragility. It's all around us. We all experience it. And I hope that what we explored together today can help us all be more aware of times when we feel fragile and how we can respond. I'd love to hear your thoughts. I'll be looking at the comments on this video. And if you'd like to come hang out with me right now on Discord, we're going to hang out there immediately after this show. So you can go to CozyRobots.com and learn how to join us. Thanks to all the Cozy Robots for making this show possible. And as always, friends, the Cozy Robot Show is made by the most talented and supportive team in the entire world. And so I would like to thank each and every Cozy Robot. I'd like to thank this show's producers, Tanner Hearn, Victory Palmazano, and Greg Nordine. The music was created by my daughters, Madison McCarg and Macy McCarg. Production support was offered by Andrew Galucky. Production support and my assistant is Caitlin Hermstad. Design by Sydney Smith. Motion graphic design by Landon Satterfield. Set design by Jesse Lane Interiors. Wardrobe stylist, craft services, and all-around miracle life worker, my wife, Jenny McCarg. Thank you all so much for joining us tonight, and I can't wait to see you again next week. Take care, my friends, and be well. The Cozy Robot Show.